Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The Peter Schiff Show. The big story continues to be the bear market rally that has been going on in the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar index today closed above 93. The low this year was just above 88. So we've risen about 5% so far in the U.S. dollar index from the lows. Year to date, we're now off uh, or up, rather, on the dollar, a little over 1%. We're still down about 6% from where the dollar ended 2016. But we've had this uh, considerable rally in a relatively short period of time. Uh, to me, it has the makings of a bear market rally, a short covering rally. There hasn't been any good economic news that would explain the strength of the dollar. In fact, I talked about uh, Fed comments from last week, which to me are quite dovish when you have the Federal Reserve indicating a tolerance of inflation above 2%, talking about symmetrical inflation rather than keeping it below 2%. Uh, so to me, those are statements that would normally be negative for the dollar. The economic data, the jobs numbers that came out last week, much weaker than expected. So all the information would actually argue uh, against a more aggressive Fed, uh, in favor of more dovish Fed, yet the dollar is rising anyway. I think it's technical. I think it's short covering. And in fact, I think it's very short-sighted. One of the areas where the dollar is the strongest is actually against the emerging market currencies, not the currencies that are in the U.S. dollar index, because that's dominated by the euro, you know, then the pounds in there, the yen, those currencies. 
But the emerging market currencies, they're the ones that are bearing the brunt of this sell-off. And it's a self-fulfilling uh, you know, problem because as these emerging market currencies go down, it puts upward pressure on their already increasing inflation rates. Right? I think inflation is picking up all around the world. Uh, but if your currency is going down, that puts even more upward pressure on consumer prices. And the politicians in these emerging economies are resisting higher interest rates to both combat increasing inflation and to support a weakening currency, which is only adding fuel to the fire. But what's so ironic about all this is that traders are missing the bigger point. The United States is in the exact same predicament, only worse than the emerging economies, because we are going to be faced with the same set of dynamics in that we are going to have rising inflation and a falling dollar that for political reasons, uh, the Fed will be uh, unable to or unwilling to raise interest rates sufficiently to put out the inflationary fire and prop up uh, the dollar. Now, yes, I mean, the United States doesn't borrow in foreign currencies, right? So it doesn't have that problem. Emerging economies do, right? They borrow in dollars, and the strong dollar actually hurts their economy because it diverts uh, purchasing power uh, to debt service, right? A weakening dollar is what helps the emerging markets and what helps their economies and their currencies. So they're getting hit right now, but this is a head fake because the real economy that's going to be put into this predicament is the United States because inflation is going to be picking up here. The Fed has already admitted that. They just haven't been honest to the extent uh, that inflation is going to rise much more than they think. It's not going to be symmetrical, right? Inflation is going to go dramatically higher. It's going to be above 2% by a much larger margin than it ever got below. And again, this is just based on their measurements. But I think a lot of people are getting stopped out of the market. There were a lot of traders that, as a result of January's huge move down in the dollar, which was the biggest drop in 30 years for the dollar into January, I think we did get a lot of traders that crowded into the short dollar trade. Finally, they kind of, you know, they missed out on a lot of the downside, but they piled in at the end of January. So now they're getting stopped out. But to me, this is an opportunity for people who actually understand what's really going on and what the big picture means for the dollar. This is an opportunity to add to your dollar shorts. Uh, if you're an investor, it's an opportunity to invest more in uh, emerging economies, in foreign currencies, in precious metals. Obviously, the, the, I mean, the gold market is being uh, suppressed a bit by the strength of the dollar. But as the dollar surrenders those ill-gotten gains... That is going to be particularly uh, you know, good for the gold market. Look at the oil market. Oil prices closed above $70 today for the first time in, what, four years or whatever, five years when oil was above $70 a barrel. We got above 70 yesterday. We got up to almost 71. We got to like 70, 80. But we couldn't hold it. We sold off on the close, and we closed below 70. Now, this morning, we had rallied above 70 again. We didn't take out yesterday's high. I think we got up to about 70, 70 or so. And then we had a huge sell-off. What happened was, earlier in the day, I think CNN came out with a, um, a story that Trump was gonna, wasn't going to pull out of the Iran uh, deal. And 
all of a sudden oil tanked. Oil went way down. It went down to like uh, 67 and a half or something like that, or close to it, down two and a half bucks. Later, we found out that that was wrong. The New York Times came out with the correct story, and then we found out that, no, we are pulling out, uh, and the sanctions are going on. And then oil rebounded. It didn't go back up to new highs, but it did manage to close above $70 a barrel. Now, of course, rising oil prices are putting more upward pressure on the inflation that the emerging markets are experiencing because they have to buy the dollars to buy the oil. I've already talked about how oil prices are at record highs, gas prices in particular, gasoline, in many countries uh, now. That the gas price is even higher than when it was than when oil was $150 a barrel because their currencies are much lower in relationship to the dollar. So for them, oil is more expensive now than it was back then when it was more expensive for Americans. But if the oil price is this strong in dollars when the dollar is rising, imagine how much stronger the dollar price of oil is going to be when the dollar starts to fall. Right? Because when the dollar starts to fall, that's going to create even more global demand for oil. Right now, the strength of the dollar is suppressing global demand for oil. Yet despite that suppressed demand, the oil price is rising anyway, even in dollars. And that shows you the underlying strength in this market. And I've been talking all year, all last year, about the increase in the price of oil that I expected to rise this year to between $80 and $100 a barrel. And we certainly are on track to do that. We're only $10 away or less than $10 away now from 80 And I think we have a good shot of hitting 100 especially if I am right about this bear market rally in the dollar. Uh, if it doesn't go much higher and if we are making new lows on the dollar this year, then that will certainly put a lot of upward pressure on oil prices. But then the markets are going to start to pay attention to the U.S. problem. Because when the U.S. economy uh, slips into recession, when U.S. inflation is accelerating, you know, we're spending right now, I think I read that we're on track in the next fiscal year, the U.S. government's going to spend $5 trillion, $5 trillion in one year. I mean, that's never been done. We're running $100 billion per month deficits. And that's in supposedly good times, right? A booming economy. What's going to happen to those deficits the next time we're in recession? I mean, not only are we going to hit $2 trillion, but we could be closer to $3 trillion than $2 trillion. And obviously, when, it, when inflation really starts to pick up, we are in the same predicament as any emerging market because we can't raise interest rates because we're, we'd be dead. The economy would implode, the stock market, the real estate market, the bond market, everything would hit the fan. The cost of servicing the debt would explode. Remember, when interest rates go up, it's not just affecting the money the government borrows now, right? The new borrowing, it affects the entirety of the national debt because all those bonds mature. They're all short term. You know, when Paul Volcker jacked interest rates up to 20% in 1980, the national debt, I forget what it was at the time, maybe $500 billion or something like that or whatever it was. But the increase in the um, in interest rates didn't affect the existing national debt. That was mostly with 10 to 30-year government bonds. So that stuff was locked in. It only affected the new money they had to borrow, whatever the deficits were. And again, I don't remember, were they $50 billion, $40 billion, $60 billion, whatever they were, right? So they had to pay the extra interest on that new borrowing. But 
the, the, the stuff that they had borrowed in the past, that was all locked in. That's not the case today. We have to re-borrow. We have to constantly refinance the money we borrowed in the past because the people weren't dumb enough to loan it to us for 30 years. They loaned it to us for 30 days. And so we have to constantly roll this stuff over. So this is going to be a much bigger problem. So as weak as the emerging market currencies are right now, the U.S. dollar is going to be even weaker when the traders figure it out. Right? When the dollar reverses and starts going down again, and that weakness in the dollar fuels the inflationary fire when oil prices are even stronger, when other commodity prices are even stronger, and the U.S. economy is slowing down, right? and the Fed is now not raising interest rates, that is when the money is you know, being pulled out of the U.S. Right now, people are yanking money out of the emerging markets because they're worried about this uh, spiral. They should be worrying about the U.S. market. Right? We're the world's biggest emerging economy, but we're, we're really a submerging economy. We used to be a developed economy, but we basically squandered all our wealth. We borrowed all this money, and now we're the world's biggest debtor nation. And people are going to appreciate that problem, but right now, they don't. Right? They can't see the forest for the trees, and so they're selling the emerging markets when they should be selling uh, the next submerging market, the United States. In fact, we got more confirmation on y- yesterday of the weakness of the American consumer in credit card use, which took a nosedive. We got consumer credit in March, and it grew at the slowest pace in six months, much less than what was expected. Now, in general, you would think, well, isn't that good, right, that consumers aren't borrowing as much money? And it is good in the long term, right? It's good that consumers aren't taking on more consumer debt. I mean, consumers shouldn't take on any consumer debt. Consumer debt is a waste of scarce savings. You should never borrow to consume. We should borrow to invest. We should borrow to produce. We should pay for consumption through our earnings or by drawing down some savings, right? That we, you know, we saved in the past and now we, we spend what we saved. You should not borrow money to spend it because any money that's borrowed to spend, well, that uses up money that might have been borrowed to produce. Right. And it's productive borrowing. Right. When you a business invests in plant and equipment to produce more, to make workers more productive, that benefits the economy. If some idiot goes out and borrows money to take a vacation or to buy a plasma TV. Right. That is taking money away from an entrepreneur who might otherwise have been able to use it to invest in growing the economy. You don't grow the economy by buying stuff that's already been produced. Right. You grow the economy by investing in productive capacity. Right. You don't do that uh, by buying a, a plasma TV, especially if the plasma TV was made in China or Korea. I mean, what good is that for the American economy? I mean, how much money uh, does uh, uh, the retailer, their margin is razor thin. Right. They don't make a big profit because an American buys a plasma TV. In fact, they buy it on Amazon. There's no profit at all. All Amazon does is just, you know, facilitate the transaction, but they don't even make a profit. Right. They, they do it at break even just to get the revenue. Uh, so none of that grows our economy. It, 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 it prevents the economy from growing. But getting back to the fact that consumer uh, credit card use is slowing, why is that happening? I think it's happening because consumers simply don't have the capacity to borrow more. They've already borrowed so much, they're maxed out on a lot of these credit cards, and they're just not borrowing anymore because they don't have the income. They don't have a good enough job. They have too much debt. They, their, their auto loan payment is too high. Their student loan payments are too high. 
you know, they have a mortgage or they have rent and their rent's gone up, right? So they're not able to use their credit cards as much, which means they can't buy because they're only buying if they borrow. And this jives with all the data that's been coming out. I've been talking about the slowdown in retail sales, the slowdown in imports. Everything is suggesting that consumer is running out of gas, right? And we know the consumer has no savings because savings are at record lows. We know wages are barely rising. So the capacity to spend is the capacity to borrow, right, to put it on a credit card. Well, if they're not going deeper into debt because they can't do it, well, that slows down this whole consumption-based phony economy, right? You got 70% of this GDP based on people borrowing money that they probably can't repay to buy stuff they can't even afford. And now if they're not doing that, right, the whole thing comes tumbling down, which means the Federal Reserve has got to try to goose it back up again, right? How are they going to get us to keep spending? They're raising rates. You know, raising interest rates are making it harder for people to borrow money and spend money. They're increasing the cost that consumers have on their existing debts, whatever they are. So they're going to be forced to reverse course. They're going to have to start cutting rates. They're going to have to start printing more money to try to keep this whole Ponzi economy going, to try to keep consumers borrowing when they're not borrowing so they can keep spending. But the markets continue to ignore this slowing economy uh, and the evidence that it's going to get slower because, they, you know, everybody wants to pretend that everything is great. And, oh, the Fed's going to keep raising interest rates. They're going to shrink their balance sheet. But all the economic data would suggest that that's not what they're going to do. Right. And I'm not saying that cutting interest rates and doing QE4 is good economics or good monetary policy. It's a disaster. But that's what they're going to do because that's all they know. All they're about is postponing the pain, kicking a can down the road, right? Even though there's no more road left and the can's too big to kick, that is exactly what they're going to try to do. You know, speaking of uh, kicking a can down the road, I was talking just today to a, a new client of mine, your Pacific client, who's funding some managed accounts, and we're talking about the source of some of the money that he's going to be sending in, and he's going to be doing some refinancing of some multifamily homes that he owns. And, you know, these are apartment buildings. And he said he was thinking about selling, right? And then just sending me the money. But he said that the deal that he gets on a refi is so lucrative that it makes more sense for him to do the refinancing. And I asked him, well, you know, how, who, who's the lender? How are you doing it? And he's doing all the refis through the FHA or Fannie and Freddie. I mean, I forget exactly which one. He mentioned all three of them that he's working with. But he's refinancing with the government. And he said that he's getting very, very low interest rates that he can lock in for 30, 40 years. I didn't even know you could lock it in for this length of time. Only the government government is dumb enough to give you a commercial loan at these ridiculously low rates locked in for 30, 40 years. If you go to a private commercial lender, they're not going to make a loan of that duration. Only the government is dumb enough to do it because it's not their money. And he told me this, that the loans are non-recourse. Now, if you don't know what that means, that means that if the borrower doesn't repay the loan, the government has no additional collateral beyond the property itself. And so my, what my client was thinking is, hey, if I sell my apartment buildings, and they've gone way up since I bought them, right? Because all this uh, rental property has gone up in value because it's like a bond, right? It's a function of interest rates. So when you have really low interest rates, uh, property prices are very high. Because the value of the rental streams is high because you're discounting it by a low number. The higher the interest rate, the less that income stream is worth. 
So obviously, we have a very expensive, overpriced housing market, especially rental property. And my client is able to borrow 80% loan to value against that property in a non-recourse loan. Now, if he sold the property, he'd have to pay capital gains tax. So by the time he pays the capital gains tax, he's better off just borrowing 80% of the value of the property. There's zero tax on that. Now, it's as good as selling in that if the property crashes, let's say interest rates go up, we have a recession. And of course, two things happen if interest rates go up and we have a recession. Not only are your rental incomes worth less, right, because you're discounting them by a higher interest rate, but you may not be getting as much income because a lot of your tenants may not be paying, right? They just may be delinquent on their rent, or some people may just move out and you have more vacancies. So your cash flow is diminishing, and as your interest rates are rising, plus if there's a lot of inflation, your maintenance costs could go up, your insurance costs could go up, your property taxes could go up. It could be a perfect storm for residential multifamily homes or you know apartments. Prices could crash. They could go down 50%, 60%, 70%. But see, my client doesn't care about that because if it goes down more than 20%, he just mails in the keys. Doesn't matter what other assets he has. Doesn't matter how much money he has in a managed account with Euro Pacific Capital. The lender, the U.S. government, can't go after that money because the loan is is non-recourse. So for my client, selling and paying taxes makes no sense. Let me just pull out all the money, pay no taxes, and if for some reason real estate keeps going up, he gets all the upside. If it crashes, his maximum that he can lose is 20%. That's less than he would have paid in taxes if he sold. So it's a no-brainer, and I agreed, just borrow the money and then take that cash and you know invest it with me. And he's going to lock in a really, really low rate, too, uh, on the mortgage, assuming he continues to pay it. Now, the only downside, I guess, if you don't pay, is that if the bank forgives the loan, that could end up being taxable income. But the last time that happened during the crisis, the government passed the law and they forgave all that. They said, hey, if you walk away from your mortgage and you don't repay it, it's not taxable income. So the government already set it a precedent of you know giving you a bailout if your loan gets forgiven and it's not going to be taxable. But here is the problem. The government is doing something that no private lender would do. A non-recourse loan on on commercial commercial lending? I mean this is crazy that you're going to do that especially when real estate prices are already so high and it, they they've got so far to drop. And of course all this is only possible because the government got into this and I tried to stop it. Now I don't know if you know if you if you didn't get a chance but I went and I testified before Congress twice. And, you know, after my first testimony, I was shocked that they invited me back. Now, I'll tell you this. It's not, it's not going to be a hat trick. There's no way that they're inviting me back. In fact, the guy who invited me to testify the second time, he got fired from his job because he invited me. I felt bad, you know, that I got the guy fired. But you got to watch my testimony. Watch both of them. Watch the first one first. They're both on my YouTube channel. The first one is Mr. Schiff goes to Washington. And then the second one is Mr. Schiff returns from Washington. Now, the one on my website, I said some really bad things about the government. And they were so bad that my compliance department forced me to edit them out. So my version on my website 
doesn't even have everything that I said because I, I, I was censored. I censored myself because I didn't want to be too critical of, of, of the government in my opening talk. So I think there's some other versions that, that didn't have a compliance department editing out that stuff. In fact, initially, somebody put uh, that up on the Internet and it was going viral. It was on Drudge. It was on a bunch of things. It had a few hundred thousand views. And I think it was going to take off. And then what happened is the guy took it down. Because somebody else complained because he had copied somebody else's and the link that was getting all the videos wasn't the original one, but the copy. And so the guy got scared and took it down and it stopped all the momentum. And then eventually I put out my own, but my compliance department had me edit it because I was talking about how I was ordered by the regulators to stop hiring people, which which happened because the first time I went to Washington, it was on jobs you know, how to create jobs. And I basically said, look, here, I was actually fine for hiring too many people. The government told me not to hire anybody. So I thought that was kind of ironic that they try, they wanted jobs and I had been fine for creating too many and I was told not to create any. So, But we had to tone that down. But that's the first time I testified. The second time, I didn't have to edit it. That one is, is exactly the way it was. And so that one is Mr. Shift returns to Washington. So watch that one second. They're both on my YouTube channel. But that one was specifically about allowing the government to subsidize uh, multifamily loans through the FHA, right? Now, the whole initial purpose of the FHA, uh, Fannie and Freddie, was to help people buy homes, right? To help foster home ownership, right? That was the, the purpose. Of course, they achieved the opposite of that because they ended up making, driving the price of homes too high. I mean, that's really the, 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 the purpose now of Fannie and Freddie and the FHA is to maintain expensive property prices. It's, it's about keeping prices from falling to levels that would actually make them affordable. That's the irony of it. The beneficiaries of all these subsidies are not the people who are trying to buy houses, because when you buy a house, you have to buy the subsidy. That's built into the price of the house. The beneficiaries of all these subsidies are the people who are selling houses, the real estate industry, home builders, right? They benefit from the fact that when you buy a house, you know, a tax break is included. Because when you build a house, once it's built, the, the tax credit is there for free, right? You don't, the builder doesn't have to stick it in there, right? It's there once the house is created. But you pay for it. It's part of the price of the house, just like, you know, the granite countertops or the swimming pool or whatever. It's all something that you pay for to buy. So but the purpose then was to help home buyers buy houses in theory, even though it didn't achieve that. But then if that is your purpose, why are you subsidizing multifamily apartments? Right. Who benefits from government subsidized loans to apartment buildings. It's the owners of the apartments, right? These are not your average guy. I mean, low income people. These are people who own uh, rental property. In general, if you're a landlord and you own and you rent out multi-units, I mean, sometimes you're talking people own hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, right? Why do these people need to get subsidies from the government? If I'm buying, you know, high-rise apartment buildings, you know, why, why do I need the government to, to give me a subsidy? Why can't I just do it with my own money or borrow it in the private sector? And if you go and you watch my testimony, everybody who's testifying in favor of allowing the government to do that is representing some faction of the housing industry that is going to benefit from this subsidy. And of course, you've got everybody saying it doesn't cost anything because all we're doing, the government is guaranteeing the mortgages, right? The government is, you know, 
uh, extending credit. But the cost, and I tried to point out, the cost is when the defaults come, number one, right? Because people don't repay, and now there's a huge cost. But also in a uh, you know in a less optimal allocation of resources because the government has diverted credit uh, to the housing market that might otherwise have gone someplace else. In fact, one of the panelists actually says that, you know, despite all this demand, uh, the private sector is not going to extend this credit, and so the government has to do it. Well, wait a minute. If there's all kinds of demand for something, why won't the private sector satisfy? I mean, the private sector wants to make a profit, right? Anything that's profitable, the private sector is going to do because people want the profits. So if you've got people saying that banks don't want to lend, there's got to be a reason they don't want to lend. Maybe they think it's too risky, right? So then you have these lobbyists saying, look, the private sector thinks these loans are too risky, so let's have the government do the loans, right? Well, that's a recipe for disaster. I mean, that's exactly what created the housing crisis in the first place. And those are the points that I was making uh, when I testified. So go back and, and listen to that entire testimony because this is now what's going to happen. So you've got my client who's able to borrow 80% of the value of his multifamily apartment buildings, lock in a, an ultra-low interest rate for 30 or 40 years, non-recourse. Now it's heads he wins, tails the taxpayer loses. If real estate prices go up, he keeps making these low payments for the next 30 or 40 years, right? which are obviously going to lose the government a fortune based on inflation, or real estate prices collapse and he mails in his keys. No big deal. Right now, the taxpayer is sitting on these losses. I mean, the U.S. government is going to end up owning almost all the multifamily housing stock in the country. I mean, what do you think is going to happen if real estate prices drop by 30, 40, 50 percent? Nobody is going to make their payments. Right. So the government's going to have it all. Right. That's another way that we go to a socialist economy where the government now owns all the housing. Now, what's the government going to do when it owns all these multifamily homes? Is it going to raise rents on voters? Is it going to? No. Right. I mean. This is a disaster. Now, obviously, if they try to sell the properties, the prices will collapse even more. But this disaster could have been prevented. I saw this coming from a mile away. I told Congress exactly what was going to happen if they did this, that this was a mistake. Now, of course, they don't know it's a mistake yet, right? Because they're still going merrily about their business, giving out all kinds of cheap loans, non-recourse loans. 20, 20% out loan to value. You might think, yeah, 20% to loan to value, that's a big cushion, right? That's better than these residential mortgages they're making with 3% down or nothing down. But when you have such an overvalued commercial market, when interest rates are rock bottom and they're rising, right, real estate prices have a long way to fall. 20% decline barely scratches the surface of what's going to happen. So this is the worst time for uh, lenders to allow home buyers to pull out 80% of the value of their overpriced property on a non-recourse basis. Okay, at least if you had recourse, right, you can go to the lenders, the borrower's other assets, right, if he doesn't pay. But if you have no recourse, if the only way you, only thing you can do is get the property, then you give the buyer a free put. And that put's going to get exercised if the market goes down. The only way it's not going to exercise is if the market goes up. So the government can't win. They can only lose. But in the short run, right, what are they doing? They're helping to prop up real estate prices because let's say Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, whatever, wasn't offering my client a sweetheart deal. 
he might actually sell his property. And maybe a lot of other people would be trying to sell their properties. And so property prices would be lower because more people were trying to sell. But the government makes it so you don't have to sell. You can get the best of both worlds. You could pull 80% of your money out without selling, have a non-recourse loan, still have any upside. If the, pro- if the property market goes up, you get the ups. If it goes down, you send in your keys. In the meantime, if you borrow 80% of the value of the property, you pay no income taxes. That's a tax-free deal. If you sell the property to get 100%, you're going to pay a capital gains tax, which is going to be more than 20%, especially if you live in California or New York and you have a state tax to pay, which is now no longer deductible on your federal tax. So this is a sweetheart deal. It is going to blow up. This is all going to be part of the next crisis which everybody is ignoring. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, people are worrying about the problems in these smaller emerging markets, and they are overlooking the much bigger problems in the U.S. economy that are going to be coming to a head over the next few years, and all you can do is be prepared, right? Just fade these trades, do the right thing, play for the end game, ignore all the noise, understand how this is going to shake out, and make sure you're on the right side of this trade. Oh, 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 oh,